Dr. Jimmy Heath, and I recommend that you keep listening to 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's where they have the good sound. And today on the program, I'm so happy to have Lawrence Weschler here joining us from El Paso in Texas. Uh, Lawrence, welcome. Great to be with you. <laughs> um, would you like to, before, I'm going to uh, read a short bio um, from your book, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder, uh, Prong Dance, Horned Humans, Mice on Toast, and Other Marvels of Jurassic Technology, um, <laughs> which will be in town next week coming to an hour. Ann Arbor on Tuesday at the Power Center in the afternoon at about 4.30 to, to talk about the book with students and the public. Um, but before we go into all that, um, that music was something else. Uh, would you tell us a yeah, little bit uh, about that? that? Is, of course, the <laughs> Back the Knife from, from the Three Penny Opera, Kurt Vile's music. And the pertinence immediately here is that if you happen to be in Culver City on the west side of Los Angeles, um, and you're on Venice Boulevard, and you're, you're walking, and you pass the pip printing, and you pass the rug, the carpet store, and then there's a, um, a a real estate office that's kind of abandoned, and then there's the Museum of Jurassic Technology, and then there's a Thai restaurant, and then there's a In-N-Out Burger, and you say, wait a second, the Museum of Jurassic Technology, uh, what could that possibly be? And what you may find is that outside the museum is a short little man who is playing an accordion, and more often than not, he's playing uh, Mac the Knife uh, or, or the Kurt Vile music, or alternatively, he'll be playing Handel, or he'll be playing uh, Mozart on his accordion right by the bus stop and bidding you to enter the Museum of Jurassic Technology. And if you do, it is the beginning of one of the great adventures of, of your life. <laughs> and, and was the subject for this book I wrote uh, coming on 15 years ago. How did you How did you find David Wilson? Were you literally walking I, down uh, that street? I, I, I come from L.A., although I've, I've been based in New York for the last 30 years. I was at The New Yorker for 20 years. And I, so I always go back to L.A. It's my real, it's my heart's true home. And, and, uh, and people would start saying to me, have you been to see the Museum of Dress Technology? And I couldn't imagine what that could possibly even be. Uh, this is parenthetically before Jurassic Park, uh, the film was made. It had nothing to do with that, and, and you had no idea really what they were talking about. And then one day I was taking, driving exactly that thing I just described, and I saw that there was this thing, the Museum of Jurassic Technology. And so I pulled over, and I knocked on the door, and nobody was there, and forgot about it. And uh, the next time I was in L.A., I was driving by, I stopped again, nobody was there. Uh, I think probably the third time I knocked on the door, and... and this little man let me enter. I say little, he's maybe five foot six, five foot seven, something. And uh, he he sports a Amish beard and close cropped hair, and he's extremely gentle and kind. And uh, he invites you to enter, and and he, there's a little sign that says "Suggest donation two dollars, free for for members of the community." And he points out that if you're waiting at the bus bench, that's part of the community, so you don't have to pay. <laughs> And so you, generous. And you walk in, and uh, it's dark. It's kind of like one of those old Victorian uh, 
uh, you know, Natural History Museums. It has all these kinds of things, uh, vitrines, and it has, uh, 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 you know, oak tables and, and, and glass vitrines and, and, and velvet plush and so forth. And then it, it starts having these exhibits. It has little telephones that so you can listen to the, the acoustic guide. In effect, is a little telephone receiver. And it ha- the acoustic guide has the, the voice of the institutional authority. It's a very sober voice that you've heard on every acoustic guide. And you're looking at these displays, and they're just they're, they seem at first to be completely ordinary, but the, every single one of them begins to have a kind of strange sense of slippage, and you don't quite know what the hell is going on. Uh, and it just gets more and more mysterious from there. You actually, you, you mentioned, um, Lawrence, may I call you Ren? Sure, may of course, call, that's what everybody um, does. Well, <laughs> um, it solves the Larry problem. Uh, well, I like that. I like that sh- shortening um, to Ren. There must be a story behind that. Uh, so what I answered to as a kid. Well, you mentioned earlier that it was, it's about 15 years ago when you, uh-huh. when you made this um when you wrote this book, um, that it sounds like when you're describing it, that you're you're still absolutely captivated by Any, anybody him. who's been there is absolutely captivated. It is a it is a completely strange, remarkable thing. And uh, I mean, just to get, let, let me give you an example of a display. In fact, this is the one I did, I start the uh, the book with, which is there's this glass vitrine, and it has this kind of uh, uh, diorama like. Uh, jungle scene and these vines and these, you know, rubber plants and there's a little ant on it and there's this little kind of peg coming out of its forehead and and you pick up the acoustic guide and the acoustic guide with this great institutional voice says that the Cameroonian stink ant, what you're looking at is a Cameroonian stink ant, one of the few ants whose scream is audible to the human ear. <laughs> so you look at that, and, and it says, and, and that these are very industrious tribes of ants, and that they and they uh, uh, forage the rainforest floor. Uh, but every once in a while, one of these ants will accidentally inhale a spore of a fungus of the genus Tomentella. And if you happen, this is the, the guy talking. If you happen to be at ant's eye level at that moment, <laughs> the ant will have a look of stupefaction and bewilderment, as well it might, because the spore has lodged in its brain, and it begins to foment bizarre behavioral changes. And for the first time, it's not being industrious and, and a member of the, a good citizen of the community, and instead, it begins to climb the tendrils of the nearby vines, for the first time leaving the rainforest floor, reached a certain height, at which point it impales its mandibles on the vine, and waits to die, because indeed the spore is eating up everything inside of it. And after it has been eaten all the soft tissue, two weeks later, an inch and a half long prong will erupt from out of its forehead, filled with spores, which rain down onto the rainforest floor, waiting for other unsuspecting ants to inhale them. It sounds rather horrific as you're describing it, uh, Ren, but also funny. Well, I mean, there's, it's funny. It's horrific. It's kind of, is this, kind of, you know, is this true? I mean, you, you, you go from wondering at the marvels and dangers to wondering whether this is at all true. Well, especially that if you happen to be at eye level, because you're then picturing, picturing some adventurer so or scientist. So and, right. and if, for example, you go to David Wilson, as I did in those days, and I said, you know, what what did you what what is this and and where did you hear about this? He says, yeah, I I heard about it on some nature documentary. He said, and by the way, in the meantime, partly because of the success of this book, that that well, well let me I'll hold that off for a second in case you say it. He says to you, uh, I heard about it on uh, on some nature documentary. He said, do you have any? Where is it? He says, no, I, I've lost the citation. You know. And he says, but it always meant a lot to me because it reminds it, it, I kind of identify with that ad, says David Wilson. And indeed, he is somebody who, as you begin to find out more about him, was once a good, industrious citizen of the world. In fact, he used to make uh, miniatures for Hollywood and, and uh, was uh, you know, doing good work. And, and he kind of inhaled a spore. And he, uh, and he instead veered off and founded this museum on a shoestring budget. Uh, it has no business whatsoever surviving. Uh, and yet... His mission is to kind of rain down spores onto other people and to blow other people's minds. And, and uh, 
he does that rather successfully. Yeah, sort of ratchet open your expectations somehow. And it's so he when he said that, did you something click in you, Ren, where you said, I've got the metaphor that I'm going to hang the first section of this book on? I don't, I don't know that it was that so much. I mean, there were there are any number of things you could take as the metaphor for the whole place. In fact, the whole thing is incre- at the end of the day, by the way, it is a it is a. Uh, when, when the book came out, somebody referred to it as a book of magic realist nonfiction, and this is kind of a magic realist museum. It is a. Uh, it at first, I mean, just to give you some ideas of the other kinds of things you find in there. There's the there's the uh, megaloponera photons, which is of course the the uh, the bat who who who's. Uh, when you listen to that thing, you listen to the acoustic guide, it turns out the bat, has its nose is becoming so concentrated that instead of setting out uh, sonar in the ultraviolet or the intense uh, infrasonic range, it goes all the way to the X range, which explains why these bats can fly through walls. And one of them, uh, there was an incredible effort to capture them, and indeed there was, in the middle of the rainforest, uh, there is a huge lead wall where they finally were able to capture one, and the lead wall is there. You can look at the lead wall and know that there's, in fact, a bat inside that wall because it has a special kind of sonar. And it, but you don't see the opening that the bat made when it entered no, the no, lead no. wall. <laughs> okay, uh, so you, you, you very much while well, the the if you push a button, a luminousness, and you can kind of see the bat inside there. But, but really, and 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 or, or there, I mean, there there are just countless. There is, for example, there's this little tiny uh, pit, basically, that is held in in, in a kind of like an armature, surrounded by glass, and it's explained that this is a fruit stone carving. And then if you look at it closely, uh, you can see uh, that the master has carved incredibly tiny versions of a, a dog, a boar, a monkey, a cloud, a, I mean, like 25 different things. And you look at this thing, and <laughs> you can't really see it, but that's what it says. Because you, you you're see, looking at a fruit pit, like a peach pit or yeah. something. Okay. <laughs> but uh, So there's that description. And then there's a, there's a wall of antlers, uh, you know, like any natural history museum. With you know the, the antelope antler, the moose antler, and so forth, and then there's one horn that sticks out, which is a human horn. It's the horn of Mary Davis of Sawhall from Chestershire, from the 13th century, and uh, <laughs> and you're trying to go. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> but, but so, so that's what, what happened what to you. What happens is, as this builds up is that uh, you, at a certain point, begin to think the whole thing is a lark, that it's all made up. By the way, there's all kinds of other things. For example, there's there's a now there's a there's been all kinds of stuff since I I wrote it. But he has a beautiful, beautiful uh, exhibit called uh, Garden of Eden on Wheels, um, selected collections from the trailer parks of Los Angeles County. Wow. And uh, and he Lovely. talks about these collectors. You know, he has a little display of a, of doilies, for example, that were that were fashioned by uh, Susan Jones, and, and it says Susan Jones studied art at the Mulholland Junior High School before uh, completing her degree at the Birmingham High School. And uh, you know, and, and and he and and so there's this combination of wild satire and profound reverence going on side by side. Um, and the interesting thing about virtually everything there as it begins to happen is that far from necessarily being completely outlandish and off the wall, more often than not, it's completely true. That thing about the Cameroonian stinkhead, that's all true. That's totally true. Ren, uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll <laughs> be back, and we'll talk more about what's true. <laughs> Thanks. We're going to we're going to take a short break, hear some music and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have Lawrence Weschler uh, joining us. Uh, he's talking with us from El Paso, Texas. Um, before we go any further back into the conversation, I'll just take this moment to read um, Lawrence Weschler's short bio from Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder uh, with a few a few updates. <laughs> Lawrence Weschler has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since the early 1980s and is a two-time winner of the George Polk Award for Cultural Reporting in 1989 and Magazine Reporting in 1992. Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder, which was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, constitutes the latest installment in Weschler's ongoing Passions and Wonders series, earlier volumes of which include... Seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees, and Shapinsky's Karma, Boggs Bills, and other true life tales. His other books include David Hockney's Camera Works, The Passion of Poland, and A Miracle, A Universe. Beginning in 1999, his Convergence's essays appeared regularly in McSweeney's Quarterly. A collection of these essays, Everything That Rises, a book of Convergence's, was published in 2006 and received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. And, on top of all of this, he is the director of the Institute of the Humanities at New York University and the artistic director of the Chicago Humanities Festival. He lives in Westchester County, New York, with his wife and daughter. So, Ren, back to letting you have a word in edgewise here. <laughs> so, the thing you were listening to in the break there yes. uh, is, is the geographical fugue, and, and it's, it, we're setting up kind of a uh, time parameter here because you started with, with uh, Kurt Viles' uh, Back the Knife. Uh, the geographical fugue comes from the same era in Weimar, Germany, and was written by my grandfather, who was the composer Ernst Toch. T-O-C-H, uh, who was a big deal in, in Weimar, Germany. There used to be a joke that the emigres in Los Angeles would tell about how two dachshunds would meet on the Palisade in L.A. And looking out at the Pacific, one of the dachshunds would say to the other one, you know, it's true that here I'm a dachshund in the old country. I was a St. Bernard. And, <laughs> and my grandfather, indeed, was a St. Bernard. He was one of the most performed composers of the time in, in Weimar, Germany. And in fact, I guess you could say the inventor of rap music. He invented the form in 1928 in Germany of the spoken chorus, in which you would just have words played against each other without any musical uh, intonation. Um, and that piece, the geographical fugue, was was the first time that was done, uh, and was subsequently imitated all over the place, and eventually has all kinds of influence. Uh, he eventually had to flee Hitler and came to Los Angeles. Uh, uh, which is why I come from Los Angeles as well. But but uh, he worked in Hollywood, and 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 one day there was a knock on the door in 1934, and this kid was saying, "Are you the pro professor, talk the author of the Geographical Fugue?" And my grandfather said, "Yes, but it was just a joke." And he said, "No, no, sir, it's extremely important." And my grandfather said, "No, no, it was just a joke." And he said, "No, no, it's very important. Would you allow for me to see to its publication here in America?" And my grandfather didn't care and said, "Okay." And and that was John Cage. Los Angeles really? And, when he was in high school? Later, when when Kate, John Cage was in high school? He was just out of high school at that point. And, oh, and years later, I had occasion to profile another member of that community, Nicholas Slavinsky. Uh, and I had to interview John Cage uh, during that interview. And, and he said to me, your grandfather, he was under such great stuff. And then he went and blew it all on string quartets. <laughs> So there you have it. <laughs> Everybody's idea of beauty is, is yeah. something different, isn't it? Especially when David's David Wilson's idea too. Oh, what a great story, though. It's so so you so you come from a family of great stories. It sounds like well, You're, yeah, that's I mean, just natural uh, to you. When I first showed up at the New Yorker, when they when I was about to be hired uh, in 1980, William Shaw, the uh, great 
managing editor had me in and said, we're going to hire you, but there's nothing confusing you because it says you come from Los Angeles, but I mean, where were you born? And I said, well, actually, Van Nuys, California, it's after Sacramento Valley. And he says, but where'd you go to school? And I said, you know, Van Nuys, California. He said, where'd you go to college? I said, Santa Cruz. And, and he just couldn't figure it out, but he was a very good reporter, and he and he would... Are you saying he had a... Me, and finally, he was able to establish that all of my grandparents were Viennese Jews, which was a category he could understand, so that was okay. Because <laughs> <was all> <laughs> he couldn't quite he could believe... Not, he could not deal with the possibility that there was intelligent life in Los Angeles. <laughs> right, the California boy was going to make good in New York, right? Well, L.A. gets a bad rap. Yeah. LA, L.A. is a hot spot of intellectual life. <laughs> Uh, a, a hot spot for for so many things, yeah. Because um, yeah, you don't hear. Um, I, I wrote it down earlier. Because you don't usually hear people say about L.A. My heart's true home. So oh, I thought I thought that was it was quite quite good, quite good. So so um, going back to for a moment to Mr. Wilson's oh, yes, cabinet we, we left of it, wonder. We left it all up there, there. But but I was telling you that that stink cat I told you about is entirely true. Um, and in fact, it was taken up in in that Planet Earth series. A while back, they, they included, they, they had footage of the stink ants. And so when I originally wrote the book, it was compl- nobody would have believed it, but now everybody's seen that sh- series, so now they believe it. But uh, but the the thing about the museum is that there's a certainly a kernel of truth about every, virtually everything in the museum. Some of the stuff is completely true. In fact, the most outlandish stuff is completely true. And then there's stuff that doesn't... You, you, the, like it, even the horn. Do you mean like the woman's horn? Oh, yeah, that's true. People used to get horns all the time. <laughs> this, I mean, that, was, that used to be very common. It, um, it was it's basically a kind of a cellular growth, like that's the quill of fingernail cells, keratinized uh, cells. And they're the kinds of things that, that when you have better hygiene, you just kind of knock them off as they're starting to grow and so forth. But in those days... Not only did they grow out, but that, that they were considered marvels, and and uh, and so in this particular case, the Mary Davis of Sawhall, that's a documented case, and and, and there's I mean, the a photo horn that's there on the wall. Yes, may or may not be her horn, but but that's true. And by the way, that remember that fruit pit I was describing to you? Yes, that, that there is. Although that particular thing is, um, uh, although that particular thing is is. Um, is just a pit, it is exactly the same dimensions of an actual microscopically detailed uh, 16th century fruitstone carving, which used to happen all the time, actually 17th century, with exactly that legend to it. And, and you can, and in the book, I have a photograph of the actual one. So, which, which is which is a tiny photograph, people, though. <laughs> uh, at one level, it's kind of like a postmodern send-up of museums, you know, like uh, doubt authority, the whole kind of why do, why do we ever believe wall captions at all? Why do you believe that voice of institutional authority? And at one level, it's, it's just this postmodern hoot. Uh, uh, although David Wilson himself never breaks irony, he will never acknowledge that there is a kind of hoot quality to what's going on. And why do you he's, think he's that is? He's very serious. He's very sober. Because at the end of the day, Rather than being postmodern, it's really pre-modern, and that's why the book, for me, the interest of, of the place and also the book, that all museums today come out of something that happened uh, in the 17th century, which was described as the Age of Wonder, and it was a moment when there, when every aristocrat would have a wonder cabinet in which he would have all together, this is before things get separated out into museums of natural history, museums of art, museums of technology, it would all be together. And you would have, for example, a unicorn horn, a sea unicorn horn was a very common thing you'd see, which was in fact a narwhal tusk. But mm. uh, but then you would have a painting by door. You would have a pelt of beaver. You would have uh, a we all kinds. There'd be all kinds. Of, there'd be uh, amazing things. Fruitstone carvings, for example. There would be the microscope with which the fruitstone carving had been done. This was the hinge moment coming out of the Middle Ages and the late Renaissance, and we're about to enter. You know, the 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 within a few generations will be all the cusp of the age of science and the Industrial Revolution, but it all goes through this period of wonder. Uh, and uh, it's the time when alchemy is gradually becoming chemistry, when astrology is becoming astronomy. And, and there's just this delirium of marvel in the world. Uh, and 
out of that will become will come what eventually will be the museums as we know them today. But there was a time when it was all together, and basically, what if you under, if you ask yourself why did it happen then in the 16th, 17th century? The answer is because of the discovery of America. The the uh, when when things started coming back to to Europe from America, or for that matter from China and Africa and so forth, it was just blowing Europe's mind. I mean, purple parrot feathers, you know, or or uh, narwhal tusks, or moose antlers. I mean, there were all these things that were arriving, and. If those could be true, why couldn't everything else be true? Why couldn't unicorns be true? Why couldn't, you know, any number of things be true? So there was this great debauch of credulity during that period, uh, which is in many ways the origin of, of, of our whole world today. Science starts out with this debauch of credulity, and then they begin to kind of fast it down with hypotheses and so forth. And yes. more serious. And let's talk but a little great, bit. great joy was that moment. Let's, and that's what this is a throwback to. And the joy of it. And we need a little bit more wonder. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, that moment where the, the wonder is, is, is also hinged with doubt and yeah. how that's leading to science when we come back, Ren. Because we're going to take a short break, uh, and then we'll come back and, and maybe start with that. Okay. Um, so you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor today on Living Writers. Lawrence Weschler, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Lawrence Weschler. Um, Ren, uh, wait, what did you, what did you make of that music? It could have come right, right <laughs> out of the museum. That is the kind of thing that that happens pretty regularly at the Museum uh, of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles. You were asking me at that, as we took the break about the problem of doubt, of slippage, let's say, of when you're looking at through this museum and and. And the thing that's interesting is that David Wilson is precisely trying to crack the certainty with which you go through life. He is in some ways, uh, many of the people I've written about over the years are what I, what I call, think of Socratic characters, who kind of take everything you take for granted and throw it up in the air. And, and that kind of... That kind of moment that comes when Coyote runs over the cliff and keeps running, and then suddenly looks down, there's nothing there. Mm. That 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 is a wonderful moment for learning. In fact, it's in some ways the the precondition to being able to to learn is suddenly to just stop thinking you know everything, um, and to know that that in fact 
wondering whether and wondering at are two parts of the same thing. Whether whether it's true, wondering at the marvels of nature, and that that what is called for is a kind of openness to to the sheer overwhelming marvel that exists in the world, and in fact gets caked over by our by our sense of certainty and our sense of taking everything for granted. So that in fact, David Wilson's museum is, is when you go there. I mean, it, it it changes your life. I mean, it's it's grown over the years since I wrote this. In fact, he got a MacArthur uh, some years after I wrote this book. Uh, oh, wonderful. And, and typically, I mean, this is typical David Wilson. David Wilson takes, who has nobody at all. I mean, this is church mouse poor. There's no conceivable way this thing could be surviving, but somehow it does. Um, and he took the first $100,000 tranche of his, of his MacArthur, and he commissioned a set of portraits, Velasquez-like portraits, of all the Soviet space dogs. <laughs> And they form a little alcove, the Borzoi alcove, that leads into the theater that he's built, which holds 14 seats. Wow, that's and, amazing. And, and there are incredibly great shows that happen there all the time. And, uh, and, and, how did he and, pick uh, the artists for the, and, to paint the space dogs? Yeah, well, absolutely. He commissioned those. They're very, very beautiful, very touching. And, and these, of course, famously were space dogs. The Soviet space dogs were all smuts that they found at the pound and turned into these dogs that went into outer space. And, he's, and he has these paintings of these dogs as if, as if they were the royalty of all time. And in some sense, they are. Yes, because they were shot off and they didn't come back. Yeah, no, I mean they're they're filled with poignancy. The story of the Soviet space dogs, but who would have thought to think about that? And um, the museum, parenthetically, uh, was this little storefront, and on either side of it were kind of abandoned buildings uh, or abandoned warehouse. And as he would, as the museum expanded, it kind of metastasized into the side buildings. So although the entry way is very narrow, in fact, when you get inside, part of the effect is very strange because it seems to get bigger and bigger and larger and larger. You go in every dimension. There's a there's now, for example, the the great show of the micro miniature sculptures of Hagop's Adalgit, which is. Uh, and you walk in, and there's these little microscopes, and you look through the microscope, but you can't really tell whether what you're seeing is really there, or you look into the video at the end of the microscope. But anyway, it looks like a microscope, and you look through, and you see, uh, for example, uh, Napoleon uh, in the inside of a needle, a sculpture of Napoleon, painted sculpture of Napoleon. <laughs> With his hand inside of his vest pocket, you know, inside of his belly, uh, and uh, and you know, it, it is carved out of a human hair, the way that Michelangelo would carve the David out of a block of marble. So you're looking at this and you say, David, is this? What is this? And he said, "Oh yes, this is an amazing man." And when he finally, and, and because there's all kinds of other images too, there's there's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs <laughs> next to Napoleon, arrayed on a human hair, <laughs> but really, really tiny dwarfs, you know. And they're all painted. And the thing that's really amazing thing about it is that they're painted. I mean, it's one thing to carve it, but can you imagine a drop of paint would have destroyed the whole thing? It has to be micro miniature emulsions of paint. So this can't possibly be true. And, and you and you and you and you say, "Can I pursue the guy?" He says, "Oh, it's really tragic. He died." The day we, the two days before we opened the show, he died. <laughs> Tragic, and, and so but yet convenient. Crazy, but then at one point, I actually looked up at the phone book. I called, and it turned out that I, I reached Sundalgen's daughter, and this was all true. So let's talk about the research for this book, because yeah. when did you decide it was going to be a, the, your next project? Like when? Like at what moment was it that it wouldn't let you go? Well, I mean, or? in those days, I was doing this. You referred to this thing I call the Passions and Wonder series, and I have over the years gravitated toward these these stories. Well, I go back and forth, parenthetically, between political tragedies and cultural comedies. Uh, I cover uh, apartheid, South Africa, the Bosnian War. I cover uh, um, uh, tortured Latin America, things like that. And then on the other hand, I do these stories that are people like like uh, David Wilson or uh, another piece I did years ago, uh, which is very pertinent right now, is about Boggs, the money artist who who draws money and spends his drawings, uh, which was a pretty wild. Which that book ended up doing for money what what Mr. Wilson does for museums. Uh, oh. But uh, but I would do these kinds of things, and 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 what united them all for me is precisely an interest in people or places uh, 
that were kind of moseying along in the dailiness of their lives, and they suddenly catch fire, and they end up somewhere altogether different than when they started. Now, when you look at that in the political sphere, if you look at solidarity in Poland, or you look at um, the ANC in South Africa, or things like that, where there's these great movements to overthrow tyranny, that can be very enthralling. Parenthetically, repression is all about trying to take that fire and dab it down, and and, and resistance is to resist that, and that's a fascinating story. But when it happens in the daily life of just Joe Schmo walking down the street and they suddenly become incredibly – when they come alive, they come on fire, it's really great. It's just, it's a very, very uh, exciting thing to, to – uh, and it's also, parenthetically, very funny. Um, so anyway, I, I, I began talking to David, and, and, and it occurred to me at, at a point fairly early on that this could be an interesting thing to do, but it also presented a huge challenge as a piece of writing, because I didn't want to demystify the place. This is not meant to be a guidebook where I'll tell you what's true and what's not true and so forth. Uh, the great challenge was to, to do a to do with narrative what that museum did with museums. I expect you, if you're reading the book, and you can tell me whether you had this experience, about halfway through, I expect you to be completely at sea. You have no idea what the hell is going on. <laughs> uh, is this real? Is this not real? And so forth. Um, and in fact, by the end, I hope you're doubting everything uh, and marveling at everything. And, and so is that how you decided to design the book as well, so well, that there's and, these and separate that there's sections? And footnotes in the back. And the footnotes are constantly undercutting the text itself. And, and, and by the end, you should be, you should be fruitfully at sea. Um, one of the fav- favorite things that happened after that book was published, by the way, is that Somebody, uh, about six months after the book was published, came to the museum and went, went around for about two hours in the back, and they eventually came forward to the front desk, and he asked the guy at the front desk, are you either David Wilson or Lawrence Weschler? No. And David said that he was David Wilson, and then he leaned over quite you know, spiritually. He said, come on, tell me the truth. Does that guy Lawrence Weschler really exist? <laughs> And indeed, when the book came out, there were many, many people whose reviews of the book, I mean, literally three or four reviewers said, I didn't believe this was true, but I looked up the phone book, and it does exist, to which blew my mind. In other words, 200 pages of my writing doesn't convince you it exists, but you don't think I would have had the wit to put an entry in the phone book if I'd wanted to? That's enough for you to believe it's true. But they do. And... and, uh, Anyway, and, and, so and it was Wilson. indeed called a book of magic realist nonfiction, which was kind of the highest compliment it could have gotten. Yes, an amazing compliment. Maybe maybe David Wilson has a phone book in the museum now too. <laughs> so it is going strong because you mentioned that there's like there what with the MacArthur uh, Genius uh, Grant and and um, the the Garden of Edens and the and uh, so it's going strong. Well, it's, it's, if you if you were there ten years ago, you need to go back. It's totally different. I mean, it's it's completely. It's running all, all cylinders right now. It's got everything going on there. It's, there's, there's Ricky Jay's collection of decayed dice called Rotten Luck, <laughs> <laughs> which is a, a display of decayed cellular nitrate uh, dice that rot. <laughs> so you've got that there. There's a, there's a wonderful exhibit of uh, outsider logic. <laughs> there's a logician who is 80 years old who has spent his entire life coming up with this incredibly complicated and interesting uh, logical system that's totally different from logic that you, you learn at universities. And it has all kinds of, of, of models and so forth. And the exhibit is there. And, and when they uh, opened that show, there was a uh, the 80-year-old man gave a talk in the 14-seat theater. And he, it turned out he was clearly autistic or Aspergerian or something. In any case, it was a two-hour talk. He gave the entire talk aimed at one person sitting in the front row of the 14 seats. The entire talk, he was zoned in on that one person. He was talking to that person, that talking and talking. And that person was Werner Herzog. No, no. Is that cool or what? <laughs> and it wasn't a plant. Like, it wasn't. No, no, no. This is just no. stuff that happens naturally was, there. Like it was just... heaven. Holy cow. Well, see, yeah. How did you stop writing this book? Like, how did you know I, this, because this material, like you said, you're at sea when you're reading it at certain points. And I can imagine when you're researching and everything is unfolding or leading to something else. And oh, how did you. A series of abysses. Abysses keep opening all over the place. And, uh, 
Not enough. So Everything how do you has to come to an end? Did, <laughs> you go on to the next thing. But 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 was it something like because you mentioned in the acknowledgments like Harper's like did did having deadlines or or, or making like drafts that that kind of appeared in different places beforehand because I mean the the book I mean how because it, it obviously still hasn't let you go now. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, 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 L.A. hasn't let me go. I go back whenever I go to L.A. In fact, it's very funny. When I stay in L.A., I stay in the most prestigious address in Los Angeles. I stay in the Getty trailer behind the Museum of Dress Technology, <laughs> which is true. Getty, the famous Getty, like the Getty Museum, had a side business of trailers in the 1940s. And so one of them was donated to the museum. It is in this little, you know, uh, derelict parking lot behind the museum. And sometimes I stay there. And when when people say, where are you staying? I say, I'm staying at the Getty at the Jurassic. By the way, you know, when when the Getty opened, which was a multi-billion dollar museum, the biggest museum opening in the history of America and so forth, about 15 years ago, whatever it was, um, the headline, the the big review in the Washington Post style section, the headline was, Two L.A. Museums. And... The first paragraph was there's this museum called the Getty that's just opened, and it just perfectly mentioned that. And then it said, but the really great museum in L.A. is the Museum of Jurassic Technology. That's, that's wonderful. And that went on for like two pages about the Museum of Jurassic Technology. And, and David Wilson, he's, he's unchanged and unfazed. By, he still is completely uh, in, 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 encompassed by wonder. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And dedication. I mean, he is some kind of – he, he, he I mean, without – Without getting bushy, he's, he's a kind of holy person. I mean, he's really very, he's a very profound person. Well, let's take, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back. Okay. Um, you're listening to Living Writers Today, Lawrence Weschler. We're talking about his book, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder, Pronged Ants, Horned Humans, Mice on Toast, and Other Marvels of Jurassic Technology. M.T. Hetzel will be back. back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Lawrence Weschler, his book, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder. Um, we should mention again that Lawrence Weschler will be coming to town, coming to Ann Arbor next week on Tuesday uh, to talk. Uh, are you going to, Ren, what will you be doing? Will you be reading a bit of the <laughs> book, me. talking? Yeah, apparently um... <laughs> what happened is that the freshman class, the honors class of the freshmen uh, was assigned Mr. Wilson. Uh, over summer vacation, so uh, so I'm coming to talk to them about other people. But uh, but the public I, are I, welcome. It must be wild to be going to a university that was signed a book like this as their as your summer reading, but <laughs> maybe it bodes well for them. Yes, yes, and 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 the public are welcome. And so you'll you'll be in town next Tuesday at the Power Center, 4:30 p.m. So. Um, Come one, come all, I think. Because it's a big place, so um, I'm sure we can... Oh, please come. <laughs> and then maybe you'll talk to one person in the front row, right? <laughs> um, so so let's talk a little bit more about um, par- other parts of your life. When, when did you know you were a writer, uh, Ren? When did that actually hit you? Because, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I guess I, I always wrote... Um, I mean, I enjoyed writing in college and so forth, um, and actually what happened was that I was about to uh, – I had gone to Santa Cruz and, and was about to – I had a four-year fellowship to the University of Toronto uh, in philosophy after after that. And I was about to go, and suddenly I realized that I just had this – this is 1974, so I just had this amazing education. 
most of my professors were tenured, uh, were 45 years old, and and, uh, and uh, the next generation of hires were going to be primarily women and people of color, which is something I approved of. But it suddenly didn't make sense to me going the academic route, and I just decided I'd try to stay academic, intellectually alive outside of academia, and and um, and so I didn't go to didn't have any follow-up degrees, and I just began. Uh, doing what I enjoy doing, which is writing. And, and for the longest time, I mean, for three or four years, I was writing primarily for freebies, you know, those uh, local free newspapers that get yes. thrown at, in bales at liquor stores, you know, that kind of, <laughs> uh, for both the LA Weekly and the LA Reader. It's funny, by the way, about my writing for the LA Reader. Um, the LA Reader, which was a offshoot of the Chicago Reader, was just getting started that time. But I, I, I had lots of cover stories there. And some of those cover stories, uh, some of those issues are incredibly valuable today uh, because the staff of that newspaper, because it's the three people, a publisher, an editor, and the circulation manager, the circulation manager being the person who uh, who had his Toyota pickup and would throw the bales of, of right. the reader at, at the liquor stores, and they couldn't really pay him, and so they allowed him to start a little, to, to publish a little uh, comic strip in this uh, in this uh, L.A. reader, and the guy could not draw at all. He absolutely could not draw. It was a great, great strip, but all he could draw was one-eared monkey, uh, one-eared rabbits, and that was Matt Grady. Yes. Actually goes on to be the, the the that was the origin of the Life in Hell series and the origin of the Simpsons and everything else. And and nowadays there are issues with my cover stories, which when you go into the magazine, the backside of the cover story has very early issues of, of Matt Grady's cartoons, and so they're very valuable. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that rabbit and life in hell, that's yeah. meant a lot to me. It diff- yeah. That's L.A. Dream- too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I love L.A. too then. That, yep. that's, a, that's amazing. So so now you're also doing, uh, you're working with McSweeney's. And, uh, I mean, um, I've been doing that. I've been uh, a contributor to McSweeney's since, I guess, issue three. Uh, Tell us about the Convergence Contest, yeah, if you don't well, mind. What happened is I, I started with issue three or issue four. There was this thing I'd always wanted to do, uh, and I couldn't find any magazine that would do it. And the New Yorker wouldn't do it, and Harper's, and so forth, which was to take two things, uh, take two images that you look at side by side, and you wouldn't ordinarily think of them together, but then to write an essay about how they, in fact, do converge on each other. Um, John Berger, to my mind, did the greatest one of these ever, which is at the time that Che Guevara was killed. Uh, there was that famous photograph of him lying on the plinth of the general surrounding him. Yes. And John Berger famously wrote an article saying uh, that we all know what this photograph is based on, the image hot-wired in their brains, which told the generals where to stand in relation to their prize and told the photographer what angle to shoot it from. This picture is based on Rembrandt's anatomy lesson. Ah. Uh. And I remember at the time saying to myself, God, this guy reads the newspaper just differently than I read the newspaper, but this is really a cool way to read the newspaper. And so I began doing many things, like all kinds of things like that. And they are some of them are political, some of them are cultural, some of them are funny, some of them are very serious. Um, and, and, I began, and the idea is you find two things. It could be a poem and a television script. It could be a, uh, just things that you wouldn't ordinarily think about. For, just to give a quick example, late Mark Rothko paintings, which are where he's just doing white on the bottom and black on top, and he's about to commit suicide. And everybody says, oh, this is definitely, he must be in despair here. But if you look at the date, it's 1969, and you suddenly realize that in 1969, what was on television was the moon landing. Oh, yeah. Where it was white on the bottom and black on top, and if you <laughs> put the things side by side, they're exactly the same image. Huh? And, okay. But and you don't. And the point is not to be reductionist, not to say that Rothko was painting what was on TV, but rather to imagine what somebody as tormented as Rothko would have been feeling looking at the moon landing, you know, and and at that ambition and yet the emptiness and so forth. And and so this this led out. And, and over the years, I've done many many of these things in McSweeney's because Dave. Uh, Eggers and Eli Horowitz were the only people who would publish these things. And eventually we put them together in a book called Everything That Rises. That's the book that came out two or three years ago now, which is filled with the things I've done for primarily for McSweeney's. And, and, uh, and at that time, we started a contest online uh, where everybody else was invited to submit their own little essays, their own little convergences. This has been going on for two years now. And if you go, if you just Google Convergence Contest, 
uh, you'll get to the Big Squeeze website right away. And it's, it's like there's something like 70 or 80 of them up right now. And there's there's and, a YouTube clip. And, and I'm going to turn the, the, all those into – I have to write essays on everyone. It's like batting practice for me. So people send me <laughs> things that I have to respond. And we're going to do a, a, book, a new book of them one of these days, which will be called All That Is Solid. So it's the follow-up to everything that rises is all that is solid. That's, that's great. You know, there's a YouTube clip of you, too, uh, explaining this a little oh, really? bit. So so people can can look for the Convergence co- Contest and you talking about it on YouTube and, and see some examples in case they want to write in write in as well. Sure. I hope they do. We need more. We, we, we need fresh convergences. <laughs> what, are, what, are you, what other projects are you working on right now, Ren? Well, you know, as you mentioned, I'm the head of the Chicago Humanities Festival, and so we're having our 20th anniversary. I, I end up being in Chicago about five days a month, and the festival takes place in November. And uh, over the years, and I've been doing this for about four years now, we've had different themes. We had war, and we had a global war meeting, and we had uh, migrations. It's pretty heavy things. But for the 20th anniversary edition, which is coming up in November, uh, I decided that when I started programming it about uh, a year and a half ago that we'd probably be in a depression by this point. And, oh, and uh, oh, so I decided we would, we would do laughter as our theme. Oh, great. Now, keep in mind, that's, that's not happiness. Happiness is smug. Laughter is, is raucous or cruel or, or blithe. It's, it's very, very filled with different things. So we're going to have events. We're going to have uh, poets and, and filmmakers and artists and, and uh, about 100 events over two weeks in early November. We're going to have a, a guy lecturing on Wittgenstein and Buster Keaton. We're going to have another person doing a talk on the Book of Job and the Comedy of Suffering. When you understand that the Book of Job is actually a large joke and not, and not, and yes. not as is always assertion. Yes. Simon Shaba, the historian, and I are going to have a, a Jewish joke slap down. We're going to, <laughs> and we'll have a Klesmer fiddler who will be uh, like Dooley Banjos, you know, and, and, and uh, oh. Deliverance. Oh, well, and, oh, uh, well so done. all kinds of fun stuff, so I've, I've got that coming up. Huh. And then I, I basically, I have two books out this year about uh, David Hockney and Robert Irwin, two artists who disagree about everything, but, but uh, have been having this conversation in my head anyway for the last 30 years that I've been having conversations with them. Well, maybe we can. Um, maybe you'll come back on the program then, because I actually wanted to talk to you about the paralyzed cyclops, like the, yeah, the, yeah, thing, yeah, which would be Robert David, Irwin David and David Hockney. Hockney. believes that, yeah. that that photography is all right if you don't mind looking at the world from the point of view of a paralyzed cyclops for a split second, but that's not what the world is like. <laughs> no, it, and and David Wilson uh, makes sure that we start to understand that and gets us wondering and opens up the possibilities again for us yep. with his museum. So it's all, it's all tied together. Do you, you, do you know if David Wilson has any uh, affiliations with Yetis? With who? With, with the, with with the like, writer Yetis? Oh, no. The Yeti? Like oh, the, uh, oh, the Yeti, yeah. yeah. He, does, he hasn't done anything with the Yeti. I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, I don't think there's been anything with the Yeti. Um, well, but it would, I would have put it past him if he, if he, if he did it. For all I know, he is the Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> he could be. Well, um, and so let's go back to David Wilson just for the, the closing moments of this and, uh-huh. with, and with the writing. Um, when, you were, when, you were, when you were making the book, Ren, uh-huh. uh, how did you decide to shape it the way that you did like when were you just constantly taking notes and so, and and at one point like the pronged ant really um came through to you uh, or or was it were you just talking about your process of the discovery and well, and it, documenting you know, I mean, it? i'd been going at that point when i finally wrote the book i'd, I'd been back and forth and i'd seen this i'd spent many hours with david wilson uh, again hours which he never broke irony to this day he has never broken irony with me uh he, for him, it is all a very serious thing. Um, but yet, and, you suspect, and, uh, though, you suspect that he does know something, or do you think he could be genuine, genuinely no, he's believing? He's the most brilliant person I know. He he sustains the 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 fact that he is able to 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 sustain this level of cluelessness is sheer genius i mean he, he and, and, and but also vocation i mean he really there is a surrounding him at this point are a is a community of people who cherish him cherish what he's doing and and uh and believe in it as much as he does uh 
and uh, they're all beautiful craftsmen, and, they're, and they do great, great work. And and, and so coming back to my writing it, uh, uh, you know, there were many ways you could tell the story. The most important thing, though, was not to not to demystify it. And, and 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 my other organizing principles, I wanted it to be as a readerly experience, as strange as it would be if you went to, to the museum itself. And uh, and I want you to be confused when you're reading it. That's good if you're confused. And did you? How did you come up with? Because um, at some points, how did you check yourself to make sure that you were being able to create that experience for the reader? Well, there are there are parts of it where I just leave it out, where I just where where I get too. Uh, you know, like I'm uh, a truth cop or something. That's not interesting. Uh, oh, right. Okay, so when you're trying to explain what part of your I, research I, I, one was... One thing that and... happens, there's a lot of footnotes in the book, and, and very often the footnotes, uh, when you finally think you understand something, there'll <laughs> be a footnote which completely offends what you thought you understood. Exactly, and you have to go back, you know, I find myself constantly having a marker in that part of the book and, right. and, the, and the bookmark right. in the other. Yes, so to upend. And... I suppose, in some ways, this is the most poetical book I ever did. I mean, it's most or most musical in another sense. I think you know, it's very much a total exercise and getting the tone just right at each stage. Um, and to the extent it works, I was able to do that. But uh, but it is oh, it that, works. Uh, <laughs> the museum is now is quite world renowned, and if you go to among museum people, it's one of the most amazing things going on. They talk about it all the time. They all go to, to go to look at it. And and so, do you find yourself um, always trying to get that that um, I don't know, being reminded of that that wonder and that making sure that that doubt is part of your your process when you're when you're approaching new writing projects? Well, and... Of course. I mean, at one level, this is a, a a metaphor of how it should be in the world, which has to do with a combination of openness, susceptibility to surprise, not being jaded. I guess is the main thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, this this book definitely is is a tool for ratcheting ratcheting open the the mind and the heart to to that well, to you. wonder. Um, so thank you for writing it and and uh, and for bringing David Wilson out into the the more into the world uh, even than he was. Um, thanks so much for being on the program today as well. Um, and and thanks for listening. Uh, those we should mention once again that Lawrence Weschler he will be in town coming to Ann Arbor next week September 15th Tuesday 430 at the Power Center uh, with his book Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder and and um, Ren will you be also coming back in town when the next book is out when the the Robert I, I, Irwin I, I, I just know. I'm, I'm in and out I've been to Ann Arbor a few times and I always enjoy it there so oh great okay well well um We'll be ready to welcome you back if you're if you're back in town for that. So thanks so much for being on the program. Again, you've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks for streaming wherever you are, Florida, Chicago, Seattle. Thanks a lot to our engineers, Alex Bell Hodge and Brian Delaney, um, for bringing all this great music um, to us. We'll go out on another piece. Um, and thanks very much to Ren Westler for being on the program today. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, September 9th, 2009. From Bogota, Colombia, I'm Manuel Rueda. Coming up in today's program... In Washington, the Supreme Court hears a monumental case that could lead to more corporate money financing election races. Corporations have lots of knowledge about environment, transportation issues, uh, and, and you're silencing them during the election. As the school year begins, New York City restricts the activities of military recruiters. And we take a look at a new film that oil giant Chevron may not want you to see. The total area in which Texaco polluted is about the size of the state of Rhode Island. We are suing for environmental cleanup. All these stories and more after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. This afternoon, hijackers boarded an Aeromexico passenger flight in Cancun and touched down in Mexico City. The latest reports say Mexican security forces have gained control of the plane and are holding several people in connection with the plot. The hijackers, who according to initial reports from Mexican media sources are Bolivian, have released the 104 passengers on board and were demanding to speak to Mexican President Felipe Calderon. No more information was available at airtime. At least 28 people have been killed following two days of abnormally high rainfall in Istanbul, Turkey. What authorities call the heaviest rain in 80 years flooded low-lying areas of the city. Videos from the ground show chest-deep waters rushing past submerged vehicles and debris everywhere. More rains are forecast later in the week. Despite international 